Hello, and welcome back to the Dialexicon podcast, where we critically engage in philosophy and correlate philosophy research to contemporary issues at an easy to understand and digestible level. My name is Sara Shivasta, and I'm your host. This week, we're joined by Dr. William Cochran, who is a postdoctoral fellow in embedded ethics at Harvard University in Cambridge. Hi, Professor Cochran. How are you today? Uh, hi, Sarish. It's very nice to meet you and uh, glad to be on your podcast. I've seen a few of your podcasts that you've done in the past, and it looks like you're uh, really doing something interesting here. So I'm glad to be a part of it. Thank you. And thank you for your time today. Before we begin our discussion, um, I wanted to ask you uh, kind of an intro question, but how did you get into philosophy and what stood out to you? Yeah, uh, so it's a great question. Um, I guess I, I got kind of captured by philosophy in some ways. Um, I remember very distinctly being uh, in grade eight and my English teacher took us outside uh, one day. It was a beautiful day in Halifax, Nova Scotia. And um, he just took us for a walk. And we were uh, walking around the neighborhood around our school. And he would just ask us very simple seeming questions that really sort of turned my mind inside out. He would ask us things like, you know, we'd, we'd walk up to a stop sign and he would say, okay, so here's this red octagon with these letters on it. Why does everybody stop there? What is it about this that makes everybody behave in a certain way? And, you know, it's a fairly simple question, but it, it took something that was like so familiar to me that I just was, I was sort of habituated into thinking like, oh, you see a stop sign, you stop and made it unfamiliar uh, in some ways. And that was just kind of like intoxicating. It kind of, it captured me. And I, I remember being uh, very um, wanting to have that feeling more. Uh, and so uh, similar sorts of situations happened to me in uh, theory of knowledge class, I took an IB program. And uh, we talked about like arguments about um, the nature of gravity. And I remember uh, one reading we did was like arguing that we couldn't really prove that gravity existed or something like that. And I remember thinking that uh, as I was leaving class, I might float away because this argument had been so powerful. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, it was, it was things like that that really got me interested in philosophy, but I suppose I didn't really know that it was philosophy that I was doing until much later when I got into university. And um, I really liked the ability to talk about all sorts of different issues. I didn't really have to concentrate on any one particular thing. Um, I could talk about epistemology or ethics or the history of philosophy or the philosophy of biology, the philosophy of psychology, the philosophy of whatever. It had a lot of breadth, uh, but also simultaneously a lot of depth too. Like you could get to some of the most fundamental questions in each of those disciplines. And so that, that was very satisfying to me personally. So uh, when you joined, or I guess like learned that there's like philosophy in college as a formal, I guess, career or option, um, is that like the first path that you went through? Or like, did you have any other interests that you explored first and then led into philosophy or what was that like? Yeah, so I took a kind of roundabout uh, route to get to philosophy. Um, when I started at university, I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I took a foundation year program. It's like a, a great books course um, for my whole first year. We studied everything from the Epic of Gilgamesh all the way up to Dylan and uh, everything in between. And uh, that was great because I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I just studied everything. And um, it was from there that I, I still wasn't sure what I wanted to do after that. So I went to a different university and I just allowed myself the freedom to take the courses that were interesting to me. Um, and it turned out that the courses that were the most interesting to me were things like Chinese philosophy or um, a political theory class that talked primarily about Plato's Republic. Um, and so when I uh, 
left that university, came back to my institution that I started at, University of King's College in Nova Scotia. Uh, I thought, you know, what I really want to do is, is study um, classics because of Plato. And then I got into philosophy through through that, through through my studies of ancient philosophy in particular. Um, it wasn't until grad school that I officially enrolled in, in a philosophy PhD program, still studying ancient philosophy, but I got exposed to more contemporary philosophy there as well. Interesting. Yeah. And that kind of leads us into our discussion today, which um, is about Aristotle and Aristotelian education and ethics in computer science. So many students have heard of Aristotle, whether that be through books or I guess like just in general teaching and general knowledge overall, and how he's one of like the greatest ancient Greek philosophers. But I don't think a lot of us really understand the significance and importance of his work. Um, could you provide some background knowledge on Aristotle and his work in philosophy and his impact? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think it's in some ways kind of hard to overstate the impact that Aristotle's had. He is in some ways sort of one of the foundational thinkers, at least for the West. So much so that, you know, when we talk about different disciplines in the university, like, um, or like a math department versus a psychology department versus an English department, that division of these different subjects into their own fields, that in some ways you can attribute to Aristotle, something that basic. Uh, he was one of the first to, to really do that. So his teacher was, was Plato, who uh, wrote dialogues. And in those dialogues, he often talks about how Socrates would uh, interact with various interlocutors, ask them questions, uh, and expose their ignorance about things. Uh, and in those dialogues, Plato's often mixing things like metaphysics and epistemology and ethics all together in one very, uh, very interesting, very engaging conversation. Uh, but it was it was Aristotle, who, Plato's student, who first tried to sort of distinguish those different fields and, and systematize them. Um, so that's one of his contributions is just the sort of systematic approach to different disciplines or branches of knowledge. Um, and then within some of those branches of knowledge too, he was in some ways uh, the inventor of some of them. People often call him the, the father of logic, um, which we use every time we're thinking we're, we're using logic in some respect. Um, also, he is credited with a lot of the foundational work in marine biology. He spent some time just sort of going off and, and studying, uh, studying a lake in uh, Assos, I think, and um, just looking at different marine life and trying to categorize things and figure out what's what in the natural world. He was one of the first philosophers to do that. And, um, you know, he spent 20 years studying with Plato at Plato's Academy. And so I think he soaked up a lot of what his teacher was, was talking about uh, there. But then he also tried to distinguish himself in some ways too. And some of the ideas that Aristotle came up with, sometimes in conversation with, with Plato, sometimes on his own, uh, are still with us today. So things like um, virtue ethics, this idea that what we ought to be aiming at in life is the cultivation of an excellent character. This is an idea that started with Plato, but was really developed and, and, and uh, fleshed out by Aristotle. And it's something that we the philosophers still talk about and engage with um, and try to reinvigorate today. So that's actually a good point. Like how exactly, um, well, I don't really want to make this discussion too much about virtue ethics because that is an entire podcast episode itself. Um, but I guess understanding how philosophy can really take um, some such a simple concept and expand it over many centuries and um, like time, like how exactly does that work, right? Because work from Aristotle's 
um, kind of research is still being expanded today, especially like virtue ethics is a great example of that, how there's so many kind of new research in that field in general, or like at least exploration in that field. So yeah. how does that take place? Is it just like define a theory and then expand that theory um, into different concepts, different uh, spaces, et cetera? Or is there like any redefining of virtue, con virtue ethics over a period of time? What does that look like? That's a great question. Um, I think it's kind of like a conversation that happens over the centuries, especially with people as ancient as Plato and Aristotle and some other ideas. Um, so for a long time, uh, Aristotle's ideas about, for example, the, the motions of the heavens uh, were sort of the received wisdom for the day. And that was just transmitted and passed down. And you didn't really try to innovate on what Aristotle said. You just tried to receive it and understand it and, and keep it going. Uh, but then, for example, with somebody like Copernicus, who sort of turns that model on its head and shows that we actually have a, a heliocentric universe, uh, that's where you get this kind of counterpoint to something that Aristotle was saying, right? And so uh, that can also be part of the conversation, like saying, negating something that Aristotle or Plato had thought to be the truth um, and, and uh, changing what they had to say. Um, other times it was something like with virtue or virtue ethics. Um, this was a theory that uh, held sway for a while, but then sort of um, fell out of favor for, for many centuries. And it was only in the you know, mid 20th century with uh, Anscombe that there was a resurgence in, in interest in Aristotle's theory. And so there was kind of a, a recovering of what Aristotle had thought. And then philosophers would engage with that, like they would critique some of what Aristotle had to say about, about different parts of virtue ethics, or people would expand on what he said in some other areas. and so. Right now, we have a kind of flourishing of uh, looking at different philosophical traditions for their conceptions of virtue and bringing them into the conversation with Aristotle. So there's really all sorts of different ways in which you can engage with him. Um, you can disagree with him. You can uh, expand what he had to say. You can bring other people into conversation with what Aristotle's saying. Um, or you can try to recover some of what he said and, uh, and move it forward. Interesting. That's like really cool. And like how like philosophy kind of spreads out over time and expands itself almost. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And I want to kind of like question almost now of Aristotle's notion in teaching and your dissertation is titled Aristotle's notion of teaching and its role in his theory of moral education. In that, what is your interpretation of Aristotle's notion of teaching? Um, because again, as I just mentioned, a lot of people might understand Aristotle um, through his virtue ethics work, which I think is often the most cited or most um, attributed to Aristotle. But like even for me, when I was researching, like I did not know that Aristotle had a theory of moral education. So what exactly oh, is that interpretation? Okay, cool. Yeah. So um, insofar as I'm engaging in this conversation about Aristotle that's taking across uh, taking place across centuries, what I'm really trying to do in my dissertation is uh, recover and reconstruct some of what Aristotle says about teaching. So in his works, uh, which are, you know, these two big books worth of books, uh, two big books worth of uh, writing there, uh, Aristotle mentions teaching, you know, maybe about 50 times. And so not a lot, uh, but the, the sort of scattered, uh, you know, pieces, the sort of fragments of what he's saying, I think can be combined and, 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 uh, and put together in such a way that we can develop, if not a theory of what teaching is for Aristotle, at least some sort of notion of how he's using this concept. And so what I argue is that for Aristotle, teaching is a, is a very particular method of education, which uh, has as, as its goal, the um, installation 
of what he calls episteme or scientific knowledge, right? Um, and so scientific knowledge, it's another one of these big terms in Aristotle, but I consider it to be something like uh, having a sort of uh, really uh, robust understanding of some subject where you can explain why certain facts within a science or within a discipline are the way they are. And that explanation is rooted ultimately in some sort of uh, subject specific foundational like first principles. So for example, in um, psychology, at least for Aristotle, you'd be able to explain why certain beings move in the ways that they do. Uh, and that explanation would be grounded ultimately in some sort of definition of that being's soul, right? That's this thing that is like foundational to the discipline. You would understand what that is and be able to tie that to explanations of all sorts of other things that uh, fall within that science. And so when Aristotle's teaching somebody, or when, when you talk about Aristotelian teaching, it's really this effort using a bunch of different um, methods that are grounded in, in his logic, things like induction, deduction, um, argument by analogy, that are all really trying to get a student to understand that, that systematic structure of some discipline. Um, so that's, that's what I take Aristotle be do, to be doing with, with teaching. Now, insofar as that's connected to his theory of moral education, um, that's where things get, I think, personally more interesting where uh, you have uh, a sort of field of study, like how to live well or ethics. And what does it mean to like teach somebody how to live well using this, this, uh, this notion of teaching? Uh, I, I argue that there's a sort of two-part, uh, two-stage theory to how this works. One is you have learners go through a process of moral education, which is largely uh, a-rational. There isn't much of an explanation as to why you want to behave a certain way. Uh, you're just asked to, to do it. Um, and this is akin roughly to what people call uh, Aristotle's uh, method of habituation, getting somebody to repeat some sort of action uh, multiple times until it becomes second nature. Uh, and then once you have gone through enough of that kind of habituation process, you've had enough experience in life, then you're ready, then you have the sort of requisite prior knowledge to be taught about why certain things are done the way that they're done or why you should behave in certain ways. Uh, and the, the ultimate first principle of that sort of teaching process is going to be something like Aristotle's conception of, of human flourishing or what it is to uh, actually live a good life for him, which is what you see spelled out in the first book of the Nicomachean Ethics. So I guess in, in that scenario from what you just told me, like in this concept of habituation, it seems that almost, um, you teach this, like you teach the student to do, and then you teach the student why. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. I would be a little bit uh, nitpicky though, and say you you train the student to do some something in a certain way. You get them to behave in certain ways, but the teaching itself, I think Aristotle reserves that particular term for the intellectual kind of explanation of of why they do that sort of thing that way. Okay, so basically skills like, for example. Um, I don't know, like making something that wouldn't be teaching, that would be like training someone to do, like, for example, let's say you're making a basket, that creation of a basket would be training. But if there is some sort of knowledge that's behind, like what materials to use, et cetera, like why we're using it in a specific way, that would be education. That would be teaching. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Oh, so yeah, that'd be teaching. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. So in that scenario, why is it necessary that the student has, um, or like, I guess, why is habituation in general necessary for a student to learn? or to be taught something? Well, in some, in some domains it's necessary, but in not 
all of them. So Aristotle talks about how in mathematics, there's no real experience necessary. You can just sort of start doing math even at a young age. Um, you don't necessarily have to have like the kind of lived experience to, to undergo that the teaching in that discipline. But in something like uh, life, uh, or even, you know, in some other areas too, I'm sure, you need to have some sort of familiarity with like basic concepts in order to see how they fit together within a kind of explanatory structure. So if I were to say, if I were to mention something to you like, uh, you know, generosity, if, if you were super young and you had no uh, experience with somebody being kind or generous with you, you probably wouldn't know what I'm talking about. And so an explanation which referenced a term like generosity would have no meaning, it would be empty. So he thinks that you need to have some amount, you need to have some kind of experience to, for the explanation to kind of latch onto and then tie together with other concepts in, a, in an explanatory structure. Okay, I guess that makes sense, right? Cause like um, even, I don't know, like even if in, in mathematics, if you don't have the skills to learn new concepts, then you wouldn't be able to learn the new concepts, right? Like there's like certain things that build off of other things or other yeah. concepts. Is that kind of like how it- Yeah, that's, that's certainly, it? yeah, yeah, yeah. That's definitely part of it. Um, and the, the things that you would build off of in some cases, you can only get through, uh, well, experience or sensory perception in Aristotle's mind. Okay, that makes sense. All right. Um, and then I guess like, how does this sort of form of education apply to the cultivation of moral and intellectual value? Because it seems that Aristotle had a very, very, um, I guess, like, like he had very deep research into that sort of domain. So how mm -hmm. does kind of this education apply to that? How does, uh, sorry, what's the question? So how does this, um, like, form of education apply to the cultivation of moral and intellectual um, virtue. Oh, okay. So um, as I read him, Aristotle has this, this, this two-part structure to moral education. Um, habituation is largely um, targeting the cultivation of moral virtue, things like uh, generosity, temperance, courage, uh, justice, the, the sort of traits of character that we consider to be virtues. And teaching really aims at cultivating the intellectual virtues, uh, things like uh, Sophia or uh, phronesis, practical wisdom. Um, and so I think that there's there's some connection between the two, obviously, because something like practical wisdom is is uh, kind of the marriage between um, good judgment and uh, moral character. Um, but uh, so there's going to be some sort of connection, some sort of story to tell about how habituation and teaching work together to cultivate that particular intellectual virtue. Uh, but for the most part, like broadly speaking, uh, I think it's safe to say, or at least I say in my dissertation, that uh, habituation is aiming at uh, the virtues of character, the moral virtues, and teaching is what's uh, trying to take care of the intellectual virtues. And so far as I've seen, there hasn't been anything uh, in scholarship that, that sort of fills out the story about intellectual virtue and how it's cultivated. Interesting. That makes sense. I guess I want to expand a little bit more on what it means to have like moral virtue. Um, like how does necessarily um, habituation lead to moral virtue? So um, Aristotle thinks that we're all born with the capacity to develop virtues of character. Uh, in some cases, if you're lucky, he thinks you can be born with a kind of natural virtue. Um, but at the very least, all of us are born with a capacity to acquire virtues of character. Um, and it's habituation, uh, this sort of 
uh, moral training uh, that uh, actualizes that capacity. Um, and so we're all born with a capacity to behave justly, temperately, courageously, et cetera. But it's only by, um, in his mind, it's just sort of like a brute fact about our, our nature as humans, that it's only by engaging in acts that uh, are those things that we end up to, we end up coming to have them as a kind of second nature. Okay, got it. Um, you mentioned that there's like an objection to this theory of education, given that it could deprive students of their autonomy. Yeah. Um, what is that objection and how does your research provide a response to that? So, um, I think that the way that this objection often goes is to, is to first assume that the goal of education is uh, the development of the moral learner's autonomy, where autonomy is uh, meant, to meant to convey something like the ability to have genuine access to alternative conceptions of what would be a good life, right? And so um, if you think that that is the goal of moral education, something like Aristotle's uh, theory would seem to foreclose a lot of those options for somebody and say, no, this is what it means to be courageous or just or temperate or to live well, right? And so it would seem to violate the moral learner's autonomy um, by giving them a very sort of specific or narrow conception of what counts as a good life and training them in many cases before they're able to think critically about what they're being taught uh, to, to behave in certain ways. So it seemed to sort of foreclose these options or, or to violate what's sometimes called the child's right to an open future, the ability to determine for themselves how they want to live. So um, I think that that would be fair enough, like uh, that objection would be fair enough uh, if a couple of conditions were met. First of all, uh, there's the assumption that this is the goal of moral education, that it is to you know, cultivate a student's autonomy. That's not Aristotle's conception of the goal of moral education. For him, it, it really is just to, to take what is wholly good, he says, or something like truly or universally or objectively good, uh, and make that what seems to be good to the individual. Um, but that, that's sort of um, com completely antithetical to this idea of autonomy as the goal of moral education. So they're, they're in some ways, they're talking past each other. Somebody who is objecting to Aristotle's view is sort of talking past him. Um, but also it's the case that, um, that there's not just this habituation process that's part of Aristotle's theory of moral education. And what my dissertation shows is that there's an additional kind of method of education that hasn't really been talked about, namely this, this style of teaching, which can uh, help overcome, I think, this objection as well. Um, so if it were just the case that habituation, this sort of mostly mindless process of, of conditioning to behave in certain ways, if that were the sum total of Aristotle's theory of moral education, then there might be this, then, the, then this objection might apply. Uh, however, teaching is this other part of Aristotle's theory of moral education, I argue, which uh, furnishes the moral learner with the ability to give a well-reasoned uh, justification for certain types of moral behavior that they genuinely believe to be the case. They can articulate the reasons for their actions. And this is also another way to construe the meaning of autonomy. And this is another one of the assumptions that the people who make this objection uh, often uh, hold, that, that there is just one way to cash out the meaning of autonomy, but it turns out there's not. Uh, genuine access to alternative conceptions of the good is one option, 
but another could be just an appropriate responsiveness to reasons, or another could be the ability to articulate the reasons for one's sincerely held beliefs, and teaching helps satisfy at least that last one. Okay, got it. That makes sense. Um, I guess to an extent, um, I guess like it makes sense in theory for why this objection um, is there. I'm confused in why analyzing the end point of moral education, which you're talking about how like there's two ships sailing in the dark or something like that. Like, why is that necessarily key um, to kind of target or respond to this refutation? Because it still seems that it's still like this refutation still stands in a way mm. that like, even though like maybe that's not the end goal per se, but the kind of praxis that Aristotle is, is, is creating or at least having for education or, or like teaching seems that it falls through that trap, right? Like how do you, how does like, how do you like get away from that? So I think that that's why it's important to mention the sort of three assumptions that are being made. Uh, so first, there's the assumption that Aristotle's uh, playing this game of, of, of having this, this be the end goal of moral education and trying to show how his own methods don't satisfy this stated aim. And what I point out is that, in fact, Aristotle just doesn't have, doesn't share that same concern as people who are making this objection. Be that as it may, like, let's just put that to the side for a second. Um, people who make this claim that Aristotle's form of, form of education is going to render moral learners heteronymous still doesn't quite uh, fly because uh, one, it's not just habituation that's part of Aristotle's theory of moral education. And two, the conception of autonomy that people are relying on in order to make this kind of objection uh, isn't proven to be the only type of autonomy that we care about. So teaching can actually help you get uh, more autonomous if you consider autonomy to consist in the ability to uh, give or to articulate reasons for your beliefs or your actions. And that's what I argue teaching can do for, for moral learners in Aristotle's system. Okay, that makes sense. Um, and I guess like this kind of expands into a question now of how like the field of Aristotelian or Aristotelian education is like expanding. Mm -hmm. um, what are some new research things um, that like these neo Aristotelian educators are kind of exploring? Um, and would you classify yourself as one of those? Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Um, so I was actually just at a conference of the Association for Moral Education in in England. And it seemed to me that sort of the, the hot topic at that conference, at least among some of the, the higher education institutions that are, are considered leaders in this field, uh, are, have to do with studies about how using moral exemplars can help students develop uh, excellent character. So there's this idea in Aristotle that if you wanna know uh, what's good or right or just or the right way to behave, it's to look to the person who has practical wisdom to see somebody who has embodied these virtues of character and of intellect and is actually uh, living in the world uh, and able to enact virtue in this way. Um, so uh, there's been this, this method of moral education for thousands of years actually, which involves looking to the people that you admire for their character or for their conduct um, and trying to emulate their behavior. Um, and so the researchers that I, I, I met at this conference were, were trying to think about ways to build that into um, a, a university curriculum. 
and in doing so help moral learners think about ways to critically engage with these moral exemplars in such a way that they could uh, improve themselves uh, in their character in the process. So, so what would that look like? What, what would a curriculum that includes that look like? Yeah, so it depends on um, what field you're in, I suppose. Um, it would involve, well, I mean, I know of one educator who uses this in their, their first year seminar, and it's that's a class just about character education. And uh, the sort of moral exemplar that he asks students to sort of critically engage with, if I remember correctly, is just like anybody in their lives that they that they, that they admire. And admiration is a kind of uh, radar detection process that you can use to see what sorts of people you, and what sorts of character traits you admire in others. And then that can sort of be a clue as to where you think you want your character education development process to go. And so what you could do is uh, write a bit of an essay uh, talking about this person and their character traits that you admire, and also critically reflecting on uh, the parts of their character that you, you might not want to adopt wholeheartedly, right? There's a danger of just sort of becoming too enamored with somebody, uh, warts and all. And so you can actually critically engage with, with uh, the sorts of uh, moral exemplars that you, you admire and, and really think carefully about what sorts of things you want to adopt and bring into your own life. Uh, and then you can engage in a process of uh, actually imitating what they do in some ways. Like, I think we do this a lot of the time naturally, just as human beings, we imitate other people kind of somewhat unconsciously. And so by reflecting on this and doing it intentionally, you can um, actually, I think, use this as a tool for your own improvement by sort of uh, taking on and um, emulating the, the character traits that you would want to see in your own character. So I guess um, in these classes, because I know like philosophy as a field, there's a lot of reflection in philosophy, but this seems like way more self-reflection yeah. than maybe like studying ancient philosophy and like just reading texts or something like that. Um, and I guess I wanted to ask like in specific fields, and maybe you can talk about um, how you're maybe trying to do this at Harvard um, or with like the embedded ethics program uh, and like what it means to bring ethics education into CS curriculums. But like, and I don't know if you, exactly if you brought like moral exemplars yet, but like just in, in general, like what would that look like in fields of STEM or in fields of areas where maybe self-reflection isn't the highest uh, priority, right? Because like a lot of fields you want to study the math or study like the, the science behind a specific field. And so looking at like a specific figure, like let's say I'm looking at Einstein or something like that, like replicating Einstein 100% isn't going to lead um, to like me just understanding like his theory automatically. Like I'm gonna have to still do a lot more like research and stuff like that. So what exactly uh, are the steps to include this in a STEM research or in a STEM education? Yeah, so that's a good question. Um, and that's in fact, one of the pieces of pushback that, that, that we often get in terms of, you know, designing ethics interventions uh, into like a, a CS curriculum. It's just, there's just so much theory that I need to cover in my classes. Why am, why am, how can I fit in lessons about ethics? Uh, about Einstein in particular, I would say that, you know, emulating the parts of his character that you, you take to be admirable might not help you understand his, you know, theory of general relativity or whatever, but it might help you be a better physicist, right? If part of what was, if part of what, if part of what made him such a great physicist was, say, his, uh, I don't know, his endurance or his perseverance 
in tackling a problem and you tried and you recognize that and, and tried to emulate it. You might not understand his theory better, but you might be a better physicist in the process by taking on some of these character traits. And I guess it matters if you're an educator in the STEM field, what you want your students uh, to do. Do you want them to just understand the theory or do you want them to actually become good theorists or good physicists? Um, and I think that the, the cultivation of some of these traits of character can actually help with that. So in these scenarios, because um, I mean, I think like this is fantastic because I don't think a lot of educators actually um, tell you or like at least spend time to like identify someone you almost treat as like a role model and then trying to strive basically to extract the good qualities out of that role model and bring them into your life. Right. But I'm curious on because it's like very, very subjective on what it means to be a role model for someone else. How does um, how do you bring about it in, in education? Like, is it you were giving the example that you've had in, in the past, but like, how does one kind of do that self-reflection? How do you engage that self-reflection or lead a student to have that sort of self-reflection? Because it seems almost that like, like, for example, if I like in the middle of the night at 3 a.m. like wake up and I'm like, oh, I really want to be like Einstein, like his work ethic was insane. Like, it's not just going to work automatically, but I want to know like, what exactly is the the job of the educator to facilitate that self-reflection? Well, that's a great question. So I, I'm speaking a little bit outside my depth because I haven't actually done this kind of uh, practice in my own courses yet, but it's something I'm thinking about. So it's good to engage with this. Um, so I think that the first step, insofar as I've seen it explained at conferences, et cetera, is, uh, well, acknowledge, yes, you're right, it is subjective. Um, but it's about your own life. So I think that being subjective in this case is, is okay. Uh, so first you try, you see what sorts of character traits or what sorts of people you, you genuinely admire. What sorts of things stand out to you as worthy of your admiration? And this is a kind of feeling that you have subjectively, um, but it, it's, a, it's a kind of aspiration to like, oh, if I could be like, then I think this would be good for me. This would be good for my personal growth. So you can start there and just start by reflecting consciously on what sorts of things you find yourself admiring. Writing can help with that. And that's something that an educator can at least give space for in a class. Like maybe it's an, a reflection assignment where you just have to write out a description of somebody who you take to be a role model uh, and what's, what traits about them specifically you take to be worthy of emulation. Um, so that could be one, one step in the process. And then if I were designing an assignment around this, I would probably also give time for maybe two weeks, depending on the length of the semester, time to actually engage in trying to emulate those character traits that you think are, are admirable and maybe writing a journal reflection on how that's going, just noticing how it's going in your life, uh, being aware of the ways in which these character traits are changing the way you interact with other people, changing the way you feel about yourself, changing the way that you, you know, engage in your work, uh, just a sort of process of noticing. And then at the end, I'd probably ask some, some questions for reflection uh, about the process as a whole. Um, and seeing, you know, asking, inviting you to think about whether there was, whether you were right, whether your hypothesis that emulating these sorts of character traits would be good for you was, was accurate or not. Um, and, you know, also you talk about Einstein's insane work ethic, maybe asking some more critical questions about like whether that's part, really part of what's going to count as a good life for you is working these insane hours. Um, and just in, in terms of grading, yeah, I, I admit it's hard to grade for these sorts of things because it is so much about reflection. But you can grade for um, completion, for one, 
but also for critical engagement, especially if you're teaching some techniques uh, in the class that uh, the students have to sort of um, be able to demonstrate that they're able to do in the assignment as well. Things like writing clearly, um, engaging with uh, exemplars, and then critically uh, analyzing um, some of those character traits as well. That's really interesting. Honestly, I kind of wish that that existed at a high school level. I feel like the earlier you kind of start in this reflection, it's it's easier, especially with how many students are kind of confused on where they want to go in their life, especially when applying for college. Mm -hmm. So I just think like maybe extracting those qualities at an earlier age would be good. So really hope that like, you know, your seminars and talks on like moral education can kind of bring this um, this change in education. Hopefully that exists. But I kind of want to ask you now about what you have personally been doing um, in bringing about ethics education into CES. So what have you been doing at Harvard? Okay, so at, at Harvard, what I do is I help, I run something that's called, I help run something that's called the, the teaching lab. And uh, that's a seminar that meets once a week with uh, philosophers and computer scientists uh, and uh, one faculty member at Harvard as well in the philosophy department. And um, we, oh, automation. Anyway, um, we uh, work together, we sort of brainstorm individual uh, lesson plans for specific computer science courses that try to tie uh, some ethical content very tightly together with the, the technical content that's in that specific course. And so uh, we, we do that, we embed some ethics into individual computer science courses, and then we distribute those lessons throughout the computer science curriculum. And the hope is that students get these sorts of ethics interventions multiple times throughout their CS degree. Um, and then in doing so, they develop a kind of intellectual habit of thinking about the ethics of the work that they're doing. Um, and it's, it's super important, I think, because unlike in, in law, where you have you know, a bar exam and you can be disbarred if you're practicing law unethically or uh, you know, bioethics boards or medical ethics boards in hospitals for 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 doctors. There's there's not much really like that. In fact, I don't think there's anything like that in computer science. Uh, and yet, the computer scientists and the engineers who are coming out of these degrees are able to do so much with their technical knowledge. They're able, they're able to have such impact on people that I think it's it's really important to have some sort of guardrail in place such that they're able to make sure that they're thinking about the ethics of what they're doing. Because so much of what they're doing is already value-laden. Like you think about uh, just a data scientist having access to so much data, there's all kinds of privacy issues, also issues about uh, fairness and bias that are going into that data. And it's important to have people who are, are in those technical positions be able to think about the ethics of what they're doing. Um, because so much of the time, uh, government regulations aren't able to keep up with technological innovation. Um, and even if they can keep up, you need to have somebody who can think really, uh, can understand some of the technical content that is being worked on. And it's, it's oftentimes just the computer scientists themselves that can do that. And so I think they need to be equipped with ethics as well. Yeah, definitely. And so just to clarify real quickly, like when you're talking about like embedding these ethics, you're talking about like ethics of AI, ethics of different computer science structures, data structures, uh, big data, ethics of even tech companies overall, is it all of those? Yeah, it's, it's really, it, I wouldn't say it's ethics of tech companies in particular. Um, it's, it's, you know, we've, we've run modules in classes on artificial intelligence, on machine learning, 
on, on program, programming languages, on you know, the introduction to computer science, um, on uh, uh, computer visualization uh, or computer vision and uh, everything in between. So we, we, we have about 12 to 14 modules a semester and that covers, I'd say about two thirds of the classes uh, that are taught in the computer science department per semester. Um, and so what we always try to do is find some way to tie the ethical content that we're teaching about directly into the, the technical material that the class is about. So that students see right then and there when they're covering a, you know, a piece of tech uh, that there are ethical implications tied right to the thing that they're doing. And it's not just some, some abstract thing that's kind of over there somewhere or that somebody else can worry about that, that right there when they're learning about facial recognition software, for example. That there are ethical issues involved even even right there and then and so is this for um like undergraduates or is this like are these your required courses as well or like what is it like what's the scope of this it's primarily for undergraduates although we have taught some modules in in, in graduate level courses um and the upper level undergraduate courses are available for graduate students to take as well so we, we often get a handful of them in, in those courses that we teach um but yeah, primarily for undergrads. Uh, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I think like to an extent, I, I think I had I had a conversation with um, Dr. Tristan Goetz, uh, Goetz, I forgot the exact pronunciation, um, yes. but they were, yeah, they were also talking about like the ethics of like big tech companies. Because like when I was like kind of in that conversation, I was kind of thinking about how like even learning about this ethics is like great, but when you kind of get employed at a company um, unless you're kind of at the top you're not really at a position to make decisions um, that are like very like big and like will affect a lot of things so I guess like to an extent maybe also kind of exploring that realm but I think that like this is definitely like a great start in, in terms of like embedding ethics because like there's a lot of fields in which which as you mentioned that there's repercussions for not having um, proper guidelines ethical guidelines a, and, and computer science isn't one of those fields uh, because of how rapidly it's expanding. So I definitely think that's that's really interesting and, and, and necessary to explore. I wanna ask uh, kind of how students and maybe young listeners right now can use Aristotelian education to their benefit and why it may be necessary to learn about that or at least kind of conceptualize um, why those steps of habituation or like kind of learning about like intellectual virtue, how can that be necessary or beneficial for students? Yeah, so it's a great question. Um, well, I think that Aristotelian education in general, it may not be necessary for students to learn about it, but I think it's certainly gonna be beneficial to consider, you know, questions about how to develop their own character. Uh, and one of the things I like about about virtue ethics, which, you know, uh, Aristotelian education or neo-Aristotelian education is often called like applied virtue ethics. Um, one of the reasons I think that it is crucial, perhaps even necessary to study is that um, the sorts of questions that it tries to, that it asks and tries to answer, questions like, um, what does it mean to be a good person? Or what is the nature of a good life? How do you live well? These are questions that no matter who you are, you're going to answer some way or another just by being a certain sort of person and just by living, right? 
Uh, and so virtue ethics, which, which takes those questions as central and applied in Aristotelian education, which, which tries to engage people with these questions, uh, it, can, it can help you be intentional about answering those questions. Right? It can give you some, some tools to think about, well, what sort of person do I want to be or what sort of life is the right one to live? Um, so yeah, I think, I think in some ways it is necessary because no matter what, you are gonna end up answering those questions in your life at some point, somehow. Uh, and Aristotelian education can, can at least be an interesting interlocutor in, in trying to figure out an answer to those questions for yourself and maybe even give you some tools to, to answer them for yourself as well. Like that's really beneficial, um, at least exploring like a role model um, because like that's not really explored at a high school level. And there's a lot of reflection and self-reflection there that can be really, really interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, and I wanted to ask you now, because, you know, there might be people who might be interested in, in, in following up on your research. What, what are you doing now? Um, and what are some of your goals and focuses um, for, for the coming school year? And also, I guess. So um, my research now is concentrating on, on publishing stuff from my dissertation. Um, but also, I, I'm interested in sort of transitioning into finding ways in which my two loves, which are uh, ancient philosophies generally, but you know, Aristotelian education more specifically, and uh, the ethics of emerging technologies can, can, um, can be merged. Uh, so I've got uh, one paper right now underway, which is talking about a class that I taught at Wake Forest University, which um, was where I tried to apply some of these, less, these uh, character education methods to a computer science course. I talk about some results from there. Um, and then I'm also thinking about uh, developing a paper, which is a kind of uh, way in which debates about biomedical enhancements often appropriate Aristotle um, inappropriately and uh, trying to see how, whether Aristotle can actually provide a sort of third position within this debate, debate which could be uh, worthwhile. So, you know, uh, trying to think of ways in which I can uh, make Aristotle and Aristotelian uh, education more relevant for uh, the ethics of emerging technologies in computer science. Awesome. I will leave a link to your website in the description. So if anyone wants to check that out, um, they definitely can. Um, that about wraps up our discussion today. Thanks so much um, for your time. And I learned a lot about Aristotelian education, as you could probably tell with the questions that I bombarded you with. Um, but I'm sure our audience definitely learned as well. So thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here.